I think it's very difficult to have a black and white perspective on pandemic-related trends. It is impacting us. There's no question. But the kind of broad-brushed picture that we all have a tendency to paint for ourselves probably is not going to be an accurate picture. Hello and welcome to The Reap Report. I'm your host, Sarah Borgson-Keto. My guest today is Gunnar Branson, CEO of AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the U.S. Gunnar is here to give us the latest on investor sentiment regarding real estate investment. Gunnar, thanks for joining the REIT Report today. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. So how would you describe investor sentiment towards U.S. real estate as well as capital flows based on AFI's latest international investor survey report? Well, I'd say that it's remarkably uh, optimistic and positive. Uh, The first quarter of 2022, according to Real Capital Analytics uh, data, um, is uh, really fantastic and uh, is a record for the first quarter generally. So I think there's this is the strongest ever period uh, for investment from a global perspective into the U.S. real estate markets. Um, And I think that's... um, that's very positive. I think obviously there's a lot of things that people are worried about. There's certainly a lot of uh, things to be concerned as uh, global events continue to be um, less than positive. Uh, however, uh, real estate investing is uh, on a terrific pace in the first quarter. And what trends are you seeing in terms of investment allocations to real estate property sectors? Well, you know, it's the same story that we've been seeing over the last few years, and that is. Uh, the, the, the top property asset class uh, continuing to be multifamily. Um, everyone wants to have multifamily. Everyone is investing in multifamily. It is the top asset class for institutional investors from around the world. Uh, second to that, industrial. Again, shouldn't be a surprise because we've seen this over the last few years uh, as these are the hot asset classes. What we should Note, however, is that office, which is what institutional investors historically have been, have been office investors, usually in gateway markets, um, has been less enthusiastic. In fact, in terms of when we ask people the question, what assets do you want to acquire more of in 2022, uh, office falls to a level almost as low as retail. And part of what's driving that, certainly they are buying real estate assets. They still own significant amounts of real estate assets. But what's driving it is a, is a concern over the volatility and an uncertainty about the direction office is going. On, on your uh, show, as well as every other discussion that happens in real estate, there's a lot of discussion about the future of office and the amount of workers that are choosing to stay and work at home um, and the question about how are we going to use offices going forward. We will have offices going forward. There's really no question about that. But there is a question about what the value is and which offices are going to succeed and which offices are going to have to really rethink uh, who they are and what level of capital investment will be required. Therefore, office is one of those asset classes right now that is certainly not, I wouldn't call it in favor, even though people are investing in it. So in addition to office, are you seeing any other pandemic-related shifts in terms of real estate investment? Over the last two years, there's been a lot of pronouncements uh, about trends in terms of migratory patterns and how uh, there was, I, I loved, was it the New York Times or Wall Street Journal that talked about a mass exodus from cities like New York and San Francisco? 
And now I don't think there's anything, I think the reality, it was not biblical. I think the reality was a lot of people were kind of waiting out the pandemic uh, in, in uh, other places. And you did have a group of people, the millennials, really a childbearing age, that were already considering moving to suburbs and to communities that perhaps they could afford a little bit more space. That being said, the top metro in the first quarter of 2022 was New York City uh, for new investments. Um, there are quite a few people that are complaining that they can't find a reasonable place to live in Manhattan because the demand is so high. Uh, offices in Manhattan are doing extraordinarily well. So this, I think it's very difficult to have a black and white perspective on pandemic-related trends, it is impacting us. There's no question. But the kind of broad-brushed picture that we all have a tendency to paint for ourselves probably is not going to be an accurate picture. I do think you are seeing a continued strength in non-core markets. And certainly our research points to that. Uh, historically, and we've been asking these questions for 30 plus years, when we ask the question, what is your favorite city for new investments in the year to come? Uh, new York City is usually one or two, always one or two. Um, and then you have the other kind of gateway markets behind it. Well, the number one city last year was Austin, Texas. Uh, definitely a secondary market. Uh, this year, it's Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and other favored markets in the top five include Dallas, and, and uh, Austin still, obviously, um, Boston, uh, before we even talk about New York. Um, so secondary markets are very valuable, partially because of affordability, although that affordability gap is, is uh, shrinking uh, between the secondary markets and the primary markets, uh, for obvious reason, everyone's going there. Uh, and you know, you're seeing a shortage of space in places like, like Austin. So I mean, the cost of living differential is not as great as it once was. So you're seeing an evening between these markets uh, as we go forward. The uh, Sunbelt continues to do extraordinarily well. Uh, and that's been the case for about 20 years or more. Uh, again, there was a price differential, lower taxes, uh, lower cost of housing, um, and uh, more and more people wanting to live there because of lifestyle, a quality of life, et cetera. And the, the companies followed them. So there's a virtuous cycle in cities like Dallas uh, or Atlanta, where you have you know, great job opportunities, great companies that are working there, and lots of people going there. So very positive, and I think a lot of people are excited about that. However, the Sun Belt has experienced so far an unfair proportion of climate change events, uh, notably in the Southwest with the lack of water, extreme heat and drought, um, and in the southeast uh, with an abundance of water in terms of flooding and, uh, and hurricanes and storms, et cetera. Infrastructure issues in Texas last year where we saw the, uh, the electrical outage and the impact it had on so many people across the country. And Texas's success over the last 10, 20 years has really been driven in part by technology firms. And the one thing technology firms need is reliable access to electricity. So I think there's some, there's some, there's multiple forces all going in different directions. There's the, the migratory forces, there's also the environmental forces, and there's no clear story. There's no one place or one asset that is going to 
obviously rise above the rest. It's requiring investors to consider multiple risks, multiple opportunities, and to be able to figure out what the best investment is. It's, 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 a, it's a time where I think we really are separating the, the true experts and the true professionals uh, from the also-rans. This is going to be an interesting time for real estate investing over the next five years. Yeah, it does sound like it's going to be a very challenging time for investors, given all these, as you mentioned, all these different geographic markets with different trends. So, yeah, I think uh, we'll be discussing this for some time to come. You know, Sarah, one other point to point, point out is that, you know, there's, I, I think we don't know exactly what is to come, but we do know that it has already happened, that the landscape has changed. 81% of the, of the respondents in this year's survey said that they believe that the pandemic has permanently altered our culture and live work preferences. 81%. Now, we don't know what that means yet. We don't know how that translates into real estate investing, mm -hmm. but we do know it's changed. The change just happened. Now we have to catch up to it. So were you quite surprised by that finding, how, how high that percentage was? I was. I was. Mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, up till now, I've been hearing a lot of people, perhaps with false bravado, saying, oh, everything will return back to the way it was. I think now we don't believe that anymore. And talking about ESG when it comes to U.S. real estate investment decisions, and which aspects of ESG are taking prominence in that investment decision-making process? There's no question it's here to stay. Um, I think there, there's a couple different forces for that. One is the global um, characteristics of the U.S. real estate market. There is so much capital coming from elsewhere, and that capital, specifically European capital and Canadian capital, um, there is an absolute mandate for carbon neutrality. It's and it's only getting stronger. It's like we're tightening the screws more and more. Uh, that when you are investing in a building, if you're a European investor. Um, you really care where the concrete came from. I mean, they're starting to get very serious about it. And um, I think it's going to push us in, in the U.S. real estate markets to up our game as well. That's not to say that we have, we've done a bad job. We've actually, I think, over the last two decades, I think the U.S. real estate market has, has dramatically improved its profile, certainly from an environmental standpoint. Um, I think we still have a long way to go. I, you know, we're not there yet, uh, but I think the pressure coming from pension plans, international pension plans and, and investors, I think it, it's changing the game and it's not going away. It's just like, this is a non-negotiable, it is happening. Uh, whether you agree with it or not, it's happening. Uh, secondly, I think the supply chain problems that we're having around the world in this kind of post-pandemic or you know, final phase of the pandemic, whatever you want to call it, I think are pressing people to really rethink why they're doing things the way they're doing. It's providing opportunities for us to do better um, and to figure out how to solve some of these, these, these big problems that are having impacts throughout the world. Uh, thirdly, the social aspect really leapt up uh, in importance over the last two years. Uh, as we have seen, uh, you know, social strife um, and, and volatility, um, a lot of issues have come to the forefront uh, around social issues. Um, and it impacts, you know, companies' ability to hire and their ability to have uh, high-functioning workforces is their ability to connect to the social well-being 
not just of the building, but of the surroundings of the community around the building. So a lot of discussions right now are happening from across um, the, the global investing uh, marketplace around how do we look at, at the social aspects of our investing and how do we do a much better job? How do we measure it? How do we make sure it's not just, hey, I'm a nice person or I'm a nice company and we do nice things, but how do we put some real metrics to it? And I think for the first time over the last year, you're seeing a lot of companies really putting some energy and some muscle behind, all right, let's put some numbers to this so that we can, we can measure ourselves and we can improve what we're doing. Similar things with governance, although I think governance is actually, um, again, I, I, I applaud our industry for, for really stepping up over the last 10 years on governance. Um, and I do believe that we're gonna see, um, we're, we're gonna see even more energy around that. But again, where we're good, is environmental. That's where we've put most of our energy and we continue to do it because we go, oh, I can change the energy footprint, the carbon footprint of my building. It feels like something you can touch, you can measure. Social is harder, but I think we're, we're starting to figure out how to do that. And two very immediate concerns right now are inflation and housing affordability. How important are they to real estate investors? Well, that's easy. Very. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's very important to us right now. Uh, in terms of inflation, yeah, I mean, it's one of those forces that is difficult and painful, especially when you're crossing borders. Uh, you start to see also changes in currency and values of currency around this environment. Hedging costs have a tendency to go up. Uh, it makes your investment worthless <laughs> all of a sudden if you're converting from euros to dollars and, and so forth. So that's that's really hard, and that's where a lot of people are kind of focusing their energy. Housing affordability is a massive issue um, on so many different fronts. You can't have a successful uh, you can't have a successful CBD unless there's affordable housing because you can't you, you people have to live somewhere, um, and we need to have uh, communities that make sense where you have a lot more of that. So. It's a big issue, and there's a lot of things to point fingers at and blame in terms of why there's not enough affordable housing. I think it's difficult to say there's any one thing that has caused the, the housing crisis. You can point to a few things that are really driving it. One is just, we have a lot of people, and uh, we have you know a lot of people at a certain age that need certain kinds of housing that we are not providing. We have not built enough houses and apartments over the last 10 years. Um, and it's going to take us a while to ramp up to speed. We have a supply chain problem. We have a NIMBY problem where people don't want you to build anything uh, in an existing community. We have some zoning problems uh, where we've decided that you know you can't build up uh, in certain communities. You can't have anything that's too tall. Uh, and where cities are actively trying to discourage uh, density at the same time that they're trying to encourage density. So we've got a lot of dysfunctional kind of things going on, not just in real estate, but throughout the community uh, that are getting in the way of affordable housing. I think it's a mistake personally to point fingers or to blame uh, because I think we're all to blame, all of us. So mm -hmm. it's kind of pointless for us to say, oh, it's your fault. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's greedy developers. No, it's stupid uh, bureaucrats. No, it's, you know, it, it actually, it's all of us. And it's like, we don't understand what the issue is, nor do we understand the imperative. From an institutional investor's perspective, we're looking for long-term stability. We're looking for long-term investments, which means we don't want unstable communities. We don't want to see communities fail because people can't live, work, and play 
in those communities. It's essential. Um, a lot of volatility, not just in terms of uh, you know people being able to afford things, but basically a lot of political volatility and instability and, and, and protests turning nasty and this, that, and the other thing, a lot of that comes from people not being able to afford to live. Um, it's, it's really important. Um, it's really important for an investor. It's really important for a human being that we make sure that there is affordable housing. And finally, Gunnar, any other takeaways from the survey that we haven't touched on yet? I think we have to watch what's happening in terms of non-standard asset classes. I don't know what to call them. People call them alternate assets, but that tends to get confusing because of Wall Street nomenclature. But when you think about the explosion of interest and investing in things like life sciences, in terms of data centers, even in terms of movie studios, what real estate investors are doing is following explosive growth in particular sectors that have particular real estate requirements. The danger in that investing is not understanding those businesses, not understanding what the op unique operational requirements are for those businesses. So, you know, it's, it's not just an office building if you're talking about life sciences. You're building labs <laughs> and you're dealing with whatever issues might be there, regulatory issues as well. Uh, we had this problem 30 years ago when a lot of people started building senior living facilities thinking, oh, it's just apartments for older people. And well, no, there's actually a whole set of operational challenges. So much of what real estate is or has been, real estate has been a kind of passive investment where you have long-term leases to, uh, to companies that are leasing floors of an office building and you know, signing a 10 to 20-year lease. That's a pretty passive investment. There's not a lot of operational overhead. But Dealing with um, life sciences and labs and data storage and, and so forth and movie studios, you're basically a business, an operating business. So we're moving as an industry. And you look at multifamily and hospitality kind of creating hybrids between where it feels more like a hotel and people talking about offices as being, you know, having a concierge, a real concierge, not the fake one that we've had for the last 10, 20 years, but someone who really can do something for you and creating all these different services for office users. That's an operational business. Um, and that changes the risk and the rewards of a real estate investor. So I think we have to be careful. Part of what's happening is the world is requiring real estate owners to become operational businesses. And there's great Great rewards for that. But it does mean we have to change how we think and how we work. Fantastic. Gunnar, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Sarah. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Mm -hmm.